Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated key for podcasts. Justin, you went to be bring up. What did you just say? 1981 was great, but 1982 is just as awesome. It's awesome. It's brilliant. Early 80s films rocked. And what a better way to start a podcast than with such a positive and upbeat. <laughs> I tricked you to starting the show, my friend. I tricked you. I did. Wait. Coming. It's the 80s, and you tricked me into pretending I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, it's it's us again. It's uh, me, Leo, one of the eighties kids. I am Ian. I am another one of the eighties kids. And uh, obviously, it's me, Justin, another eighties kid. The excitable puppy yes. is <laughs> the puppy. <laughs> and I'm Sue, lurking in the background of the eighties kids. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got every every conceivable angle covered, which is probably a good job because what what prompted this. Upswelling of affection for the early 1980s, Justin. Uh, what prompted it? Well, from the list that uh, you've just read out from some of the best films I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and they all came out in 1982. 82. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think it would, you know, Ian, you read the list. I mean, you could read the list again if you wanted or... We could, uh, well, yes, I'm happy to do so. I will, uh, yeah, I think possibly uh, the best approaching it in the alphabetical. It's this thing of, yeah, they are alphabetical, but the thing is, you know, it's one of these things where in the other shows we found a particular film and gone, oh, let's start on that one. But actually I'm having a real difficulty here, and Ian's about to list why. There's a lot of sequels here. I mean, uh, 48 Hours, Airplane 2, Amateurville 2, Android, Basket Case... Beastmaster, Blade Runner, Bugs Bunny's third movie, which I didn't, wasn't even aware of, Cat People, Conan the Barbarian, Creep Show, Dark Crystal, Death Wish 2, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, Firefox, First Blood, Rambo, Flight of the Dragons, Friday the 13th, Part 3, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, Monty Python, Live at Hollywood Bowl, Poltergeist, uh, Porky's, uh, Ram, Rocky 3, Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan, Swamp Thing, The Thing, um, Sword in the Sorcerer, Time Rider, Tron. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know how, I, I, you know, if you're holding on to that, I happen to have the advantage of reading it along with you, but seriously, where does one start? I mean, one thing that does spring out at me, uh, are the number of movies where you're like, really? These movies came out in the same year? Uh, for example, Rocky Three and um, First Blood, you know, the, the first of the Rambo movies. Yeah, a good year for William Shatner as well, Airplane 2 and Star Trek 2. <laughs> <laughs> 
I do get the feeling that... Um, sorry, I'm just eating. Um, I, maybe I should have shut up, because I'm eating at the same time. Uh, yes, being on well, thank you for adapting. Please, continue. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the first things is that it occurs to me that... Because I think that knowing Sylvester Stallone as he's tried... He's been tried to be quite canny about his career, uh, which some people may find hard to believe, but he has tried. Yeah. And I think that the only reason that we saw Rocky Three was because he signed on to do First Blood, because, you know, John Rambo and Rocky Balboa are not the same type of action character. They're, they're very different types of movies. Well, yeah, because Rocky is quite dumb, really, as far as guys. He's a nice guy, but he's a bit dumb. Whereas Rambo is just this complex, emotionally damaged killer. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, we've also got, I mean, just to sort of say... One of the things that has constantly amazed me uh, is that when you think of 80s action, you do think of Stallone, but you also think of Schwarzenegger. And we've got to 1982, and this is the first time we're seeing, you know, we've got First Blood, Rocky III, and Conan, not to mention the Beastmaster, all coming out in the same year. And, and this sort of is it. You know, 1982 is the year that they rubber-stamped muscly action heroes coming forth. And, you know, that's paradigm stuff. It's, it's, a really it's the first distinctively 80s thing that we, we can really hone in on. It's the muscle-bound action guy. Um, what's really interesting beside that, though, is that no quips. Quip light in this first year. Quit? Quip. I can't. I, I couldn't hear you. You were chewing. Oh, you. <laughs> I tried to make it weird. Quip. Quip light. They didn't. There weren't any zingers in these three movies. They're, you know, Rocky Three, First Blood, and yeah. Conan. Conan has some quotable lines because of Arnie's accent, but there are none of those famous. You know, stick around. I'll be back. Things well, like that. Because at this stage, those. You know, people aren't going and seeing for those kind of characters. It's still, I guess, based on the film. And then as it goes on, those characters become more larger than life, so that then you want all that stuff. I yeah, guess. I, I mean, the whole kill someone and have a quip is a kind of a James Bond motif. That's what that was the kind of origin of it, wasn't it? Uh, the whole thing was shocking. Yes, I, I guess. Got- I guess so. Um, but I, well, I think that's what it is. I think that that whole. The, the idea of what became known as Arnieisms, that thing is that when James Bond did it, it was, you know, suave, sophisticated. It was, you know, like uh, showing that sort of devil may care attitude. It was a, a sort of, even a heart back to the kind of atmosphere of swashbuckling. Yeah. Then when Arnie does it, you're not really sure why. What? Yeah, Bond kills people. Arnie destroys them. Yeah, and then, and then you know, walks away, not even looking at them, giving his life. Sticks a guy to a break, sticks a guy to a broken like hot water pipe because he needed to let off some steam. You know, it's like what kind of delivery is that? That's what made it funny. Is that the line was James Bond esque, but the delivery was like a fist in your face. <laughs> just like, and that's what you came to expect. Um, if Arnie wanted to, because Arnie is a very... I've always kind of admired his kind of indestructible, 
willpower and determination. It is genuinely laudable about him. He's just kind of this kind of veneer of arrogance of just getting on with what he wants to do and the hell with anyone who says no. Um, uh, he could have chosen to have elocution lessons and lose his accent if he wanted to, but by and large he hasn't. He, he kind of, I think he recognised it as kind of part of his trademark and charm, I think. I'm sure he considered it, but then... Um, Dolph well, he fixed Lundgren. his teeth, but that was, about, that was about it. Yeah, yeah, no, no, but then Dolph Lundgren. You know, you only have to look at Dolph Lundgren, because Dolph Lundgren's Dutch, and uh, his accent is only noticeable occasionally. He's he's very got a very flat voice. And I think Arnie was like, well, that's that's not working for him. I mean, Dolph Lundgren was never as big. Um, except maybe physically, haha, uh, uh, as the others. But the re- and I think that, that that for a certain reason, and you know people well, get this. Arnie has Arnie is, has is very charismatic. He's quite charming. Yeah. Well, I think Dolph Lundgren has never struck me as charming. Oh oh, hang on. I think I think there's something else here as well that's going on. I think people forget that genuinely, genuinely, Arnie is quite funny as well. He does comedy quite well. And Dolph doesn't. Dolph is quite demure and serious, well as Arnie has that kind of funny streak. I mean, he does the whole it's not a tumor thing very well, and because he kind of doesn't mind being a butt of joke, I think it works. Yeah, I mean, uh, people kind of, I think that all of these guys, uh, Dolph Lundgren, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester so actually very bright guys, like really not, not, not actually stupid. You cannot be successful for long as he has been without being quite intelligent. Um, and, and I think that, therefore, when you say, you know, that, that he hasn't bothered to get rid of his accent, what we mean is he took a calculated thing and he said, I think he read the media. Yeah. It's like, no, it's a thing. It's like Bram yeah. Schwarzenegger. If I yeah, don't have part, that part voice, I'm yeah. not... Part, part of his part of stick. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, uh, you know, he became uh, governor of California and I think that was in, due in part to all the jokes about I am your governor, you know, like that the people. Governator, as they call The governor. Yeah, I mean, because that's what you know. He was like, well, that helped me run. I will say his re-election campaign slogan was right there for him, wasn't it? You know, yeah. so. So yeah, uh, it, it, it all began. I mean, it didn't all begin, but yeah, I mean, I think we can say 1982 is a watershed year, and yeah. uh, we, you know, the eight, you know, we said about 1980. Well, there's a lot of good movies here, but it doesn't feel like the 80s. Well, this is a year that feels like the 80s. How could a film that had the release of E.T. in it not feel like the 80s? Yeah. Should we tackle the behemoth of E.T.? Uh, the, so, the what? The behemoth that was E.T. Oh, the behemoth, right, yes. But he wasn't that big. I mean, he fit in a shed and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it depends how he extended his neck or not. Um, <laughs> E.T. was... I was a kid in the 80s, and E.T., E.T., I had, I had E.T. toys, and I was kind of like, the film was all right. It, it had its, it, it was definitely, you know, had its sad moments, and when he leaves at the end, it's very sad, yeah. and it's kind of but, charming. Yeah, it definitely had its sad moments. Is that how you say <laughs> It's traumatic. Well, it, 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 it definitely had moments where, it, the thing is, when you're a kid, you're not necessarily watching a film going, oh, it was so sad at the end, that was beautiful. Kids don't watch movies like that. 
Um, it, it was for the for kids. What it was about was having an alien, and you had keeping a secret alien in your bedroom who had magic powers. That's what ET was about when you were a kid, and it was all right. And I had a few ET toys. But I think I was established by now that my dad pretty much bought me a toy for every goddamn franchise movie that was out there. Um, but but ET was phenomenally big, and I don't think anyone was expecting it to be as huge as it was. Were they really? I, I, re- I think I remember it was like the first film I saw twice at the cinema. I saw it twice as well. I didn't, I didn't ask to see it twice. I just, I just, my brother got to go happened. see a movie, so that had to take me to the of seeing a film more than once was bizarre to me at that point. Why would you go? But it was like it had this kind of wonderful, kind of magical quality. I mean, you know, you, I mean, this is Spielberg. So when he's on form, he's able to kind of do this kind of stuff with cinema. But yeah, it was very emotional. It was kind of like you're absolutely right. It was like a wish fulfillment when you're a kid. Yes, you want it'd be cool to have an alien. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was... Uh... It's, it's also a film... I, I don't particularly feel that E.T. has bad guys as such. I mean, the, 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 the government agents are set up to be quite sinister. But once yeah. you actually meet them, they're just kind of scientists who are like, my God, it's an alien. Whoa. This is so exciting. My entire life I've been waiting for this. I mean, yeah, they want to put him in a, in a plastic tent and study him. They're not evil. Uh, yeah. Uh, although, you know, it's that kind of kids kids versus authority thing, isn't it? So they're initially seen as this, you never see their faces, you know, so I guess that's how it's directed, really. You, you, you initially, and they had guns and stuff early, didn't they? They, they CGI'd them all out in the, uh. Well, they, uh, he said, put them back in again, I understand. But that was just a, a few sequences where they had roadblocks and had guns out. But uh, they weren't, the weren't pointing at kids or anything. Uh, so they were kind of a, a menace because you were worried about ET. But yeah, I mean they weren't. You know, in the end, you know, uh, spoilers. Uh, it goes home. You know, so it's, 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 it's bizarre because I watched ET as a kid and I just kind of knew it, and then I didn't watch it again for years. And when I watched it again as a much more mature teenager, I was like, oh, I totally didn't get the fact that ET is a symbiote and he bonds with Elias, yeah. and they both begin to affect each other, and you know. It's odd how that just did not click with me when I was when I because I was obviously when you saw it did they all kind of come through for you at the time? Uh, I think so. I think it was any um, yeah. I mean, I think with you know this kind of stuff with the plant and stuff. I don't. To be honest, I was. I don't think I would have analysed it. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been very old because either of us would be any, any that old. But I would. But um, I just been caught up in all of it. But yeah, I mean, I kind of got that. I kind of I think. But would, would you take an alien into your bedroom and show him your Star Wars toys? Because I think I so would have done that as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing he- for me with uh, E.T. I got as excited about as everyone else as a seven-year-old. Went to see it, came out, went, wow, I've seen E.T. And to this day, I've never, ever sat through it again. To this day. I've seen That's bits of it on television, but I've never watched it again. And I think underneath it all, I think... Possibly E.T., not really my type of movie. I mean, I... Uh... It's a movie you couldn't get made these days, I don't think. You couldn't... You, I don't think you can make a family movie like that these days. No. Uh... You were going to say? The problem I had is, of course, in 1982, I was two. Yeah. So by the time yeah. I got to see E.T., it was a lot later on in the time You're like, frame. what's this rip-off of Mac and me you're showing me? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I, I watched the remake, uh, the, you know, the kind of cleaned up version of the CGI thing and watching it and bit and kind of, uh, yeah, that was probably, um, 
you know, the, the, the next time I saw it, I don't think I would have seen it many times in the 80s. I, I never had a big desire to track it down or watch it again either, I have to say. It's very young. I mean, it's very much a, a children's film. You know, Spielberg went on and to do more action. I think Sue's point is that she was a child and it wasn't. That's what I'm saying. To me, it wasn't. It was, it was actually not. I watched it at around the age of 10, so 1990-ish. I watched it the first yeah. time I saw it. And I actually found it quite dull and boring. The beginning is long, tedious, yeah. drawn out, before we even get to finding the bloody alien in the shed. And then there's <laughs> this whole bloody middle bit of just like, oh, yeah, things are happening that are kind of irrelevant to E.T. going home. Then the bloody alien dies and you're all supposed to be emotional. Then the alien comes back to life and you run around trying to save him from the evil government people. And then he flies home. Oh, great. Piss off. Because in between all of that, there was a lot of chatting. It was just such a boring, tedious film when I was 10. Because I'd had, I'd had never-ending story, Flight of the Navigator. I'd had things that were much bigger than that. By that time. I think, I mean, it, it comes back to that Close Encounters of the Third Kind thing. That, mm. um, you know, that was a big movie at the time. And in retrospect, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, Close Encounters. Yeah, the end, was, the end was kind of interesting, but the lead up was a bit dull. I can't find the clip, but someone re- redid the end of E.T. to remove all the musical score. And it's it's really bizarre when you take all the emotional music out of the scene. It's just people saying lines occasionally. Uh, E.T. slowly padding his way up the uh, ramp, the dog well, going, that's, up, yeah, going that, down. I mean, that's, that's why John Williams is continually used by Spielberg, <laughs> because his stuff adds another element to it. Well, obviously quite an important one. I don't know, I, 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 I still think it stands up, but I, I say I, don't, I wouldn't really watch it again and again. And I think it was the start of something, and... You know, if there weren't those kind of films, then you know we wouldn't have other films since. I I got it in comparison to things like The Abyss. I got it in comparison to things like Flight of the Navigator. Flight of the Navigator is certainly much more approachable these days. Um, You know, I got it in comparison to things that I found much, much more children friendly, much more. Or even much more adult friendly in in the theme of things like Abyss. Abyss is a much better adults film, and things like Space Camp is a much better children's film. Um, things like you know Flight of the Navigator is a much better. It's primarily a film about a, a divorcee and her yeah. two kids, well three kids. Yeah. Um, you know that that's the, it, it, and that's the hook that the, the and, and Spielberg course, chose the writer to write that particular kind of family. Yeah, and of course, and the, it, the Lost Boys covers the divorcee and her kids and what yeah, happens to them yeah, angle a lot more entertainingly. Yeah. So, no, I mean, but it, it, just to, we, we, I mean, you know, we've now, in retrospect, gone, oh, E.T., that was a bit of a non-event, really, wasn't it? Um, well, Steve the reason Spielberg was, was very busy that year because, of course, he was producing on Poltergeist at the same time Maybe to move Poltergeist, on. Poltergeist, amazing film. There we go, Poltergeist. Everyone love Poltergeist? I love Poltergeist. Yeah, I love certainly, certainly at the time, very impressed. Yeah, it's Poltergeist. I think, well, I think, we, I think cinema, more than cinema, owes an awful lot to Poltergeist. It's been ripped apart shamelessly from recent horror films. I think it's, um, um, I think it still stands up pretty well. I, I know, actually, right, I, 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 I think this is, there was an article I read recently about 
uh, movies that people ripped off, but they ripped off the wrong thing from that movie. And what you're saying about modern horror movies, actually, well, yeah, there are things that they've ripped off from Poltergeist, but I would argue they're all the wrong things. Yeah. Poltergeist, uh, I think, is if you what, what if you sit down and watch it now. I mean, I watched it maybe a year ago because uh, I got the, the digitally remastered one, and there's some bonkers stuff in there. One of the one of the things I think people forget. There's the bit where the ghost hunters come round to the house and they, they say, oh, well, what's going on? They take them upstairs and open the bedroom door and there's like records flying around playing themselves and things spinning in the air and it's not scary. It's no. weird, but it's ghosts like, wow. Be, it's not subtle and, and ghosts should be subtle. There's almost yeah. like, is in my head, is it not? There's nothing Factor about it. There's nothing subtle. Am I seeing it. things? Yeah, but it, there is, it's that thing I think that Spielberg was quite interested in, of that alienness. You don't know why this is happening. And there is a sense of wonder that I think Spielberg, again, Spielberg is all about trying to invoke in people a sense of wonder. And yeah. horror movies don't bother to do that anymore because the thing is, when you've had that well, moment where... I don't where... know. There is a couple of horror movies that do that. I mean, Del Toro is quite good at invoking wonder in people when he does this horror, but... It's rare now to have that kind of wonder and that kind of myth and fairy tale and that kind of beautifulness. So yeah, yeah I kind of. Agree. I think yeah, I mean, I think that horror movie people, uh, people who make horror movies, believe that it's all about everything has to be like a fist in the face, everything has to be a sledgehammer. And ironically, what makes the end or the, the sections of Poltergeist that are creepy creepy is the fact that some of it is actually quite pleasant. And it's that interplay between, I'm not sure... Well, I, I was actually, I wasn't really referring to the kind of obvious stuff. I was actually referring to the stuff like, if you take paranormal activity and all those kind of uh, things about weird, subtle things happening around you, like at the corner of your eye, I was talking about that really with Poltergeist. Maybe it's just only one scene, the bit, you know, with the kind of, the camera turns Cheers. and some chairs yeah. Up, yes. right? That yes. has been used over and over again because it's a bloody good thing. Actually, it's a very, it's a very unsettling. It lingers in the mind. Yeah. You know? all, all I'm arguing is that yes, people have picked up on that. I mean, apart from anything else, it's cheap. <laughs> but yeah. um, but people have picked up on that. But they, what I think people have missed, and I think people are continuing to miss it, time after time, over and over again, is the fact that you can't just do those bits. If you just put a bunch of those bits in a movie, you do end up with paranormal inactivity. Um, yeah, but the money though, don't they? What? The other bits cost the money, but I, I yeah, I don't think you necessarily need to. Sp- I mean, yeah. But horror movies make money anyway. Well, no, yeah. You know, that's the thing. Paranormal activity is, is like we hated. We were making movies like Paranormal Activity in college in the nineties. So you know, we've always been slightly kind of hmm about how to pay to go see a movie of it. At least I have. But they do they coin it in, this whole sort of reality um well, most, footage. Al- almost horror all movie. horror movies make money. They do. You know, you don't you don't you you're going there for the sensation of it, for a thrill, and then you, you know, you, you know there'll be another one another couple How of years. It's one that excels in, in spacing out its its scary creepiness. What well, to you has been a good horror movie just recently? Just to me Cabin I mean, to me, things like Cabin in the Woods has been a great horror movie just recently. Uh, and that's because yeah. it's been fun. You've had yeah. the fun element, and that's what Poltergeist had. It had the fun as well as the horror. And you yeah. need that. You kind of have to have the fun. And I think, you know, bring back the fun, people. Well, I mean, yeah, here's the thing, right? If you say, and in fact this is true, if you make and release a horror movie, it will probably make money. It doesn't matter what the budget is. 
you will probably make money. It's very hard to make a horror movie that doesn't have people go to see it. So therefore, you could say, let's take a chance. Let's do something different. Let's, let's, it's got to be a horror movie, but let's experiment because we're going to make money back. Instead of which I go, oh, well, people watch any old crap, so let's just make any old crap. Yeah. This is making up a Let's let's cheer ourselves up a bit, shall we? Um, Well, let's go back to Egypt. Let's cheer ourselves up with the dark crystal. What could (laughs) be more heartwarming? Bring the kids, bro. Settle them down in front of the the television. We're in for a Jim Henson treat now, I'm sure. It's going to be like the Muppets. scared the least daylights out of me because I saw that when I was about three or four years old. And all I remember is scary bloody puppies. <laughs> 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 it's like, Jesus Christ. Oh, dear. It's another one I read the comic book. Ian, you got all the action figures. I got all the comic books. <laughs> well, I had, I had a friend in, in university, and uh, she had uh, this wonderful book that was contemporary to the film, which had all the sort of mythology of yeah. the world and the artwork in it. And it was a fascinating read that made me want to watch the film again, because I now had real context for the world and the characters that are in it. But after we, at the time I first saw Dark Crystal, it, it was a, it's a miserable dark affair of death Hi. and pain and murder and really the, the nastiness. It's a nasty film. Um, uh, but there, there are lots of things in there that I would probably find fascinating. The sort of dualism between the mystics and the sexies would, would absolutely fascinate me. I, I, I saw it again as a teenager. I was like, oh, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant idea. The, 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 the sort, the sort. I agree with you. As a teenager or as late as an, a young adult, I think it's an amazing piece of work. But as a kid, that's ter- it's terrifying. It's yes, absolutely it's, grim. I mean, this, is, this is the thing. I mean, um, people are very concerned. I mean, we talked about this uh, with the television shows. People are very concerned about what might scare the children, uh, what's suitable for children to watch. And... Um, you know, I think there's a prevailing attitude that, uh, you know, kids' television or things intended for kids, oh, I think they're darker than they used to be. I think people think that. They think we've got to be very careful. I think that people think society is darker and therefore... Yeah, they obviously think, never watched the dark. But when, now that we're running through these lists, you know, all this stuff like the tripods that we talked yeah. about in the television show and, and, and the dark crystal... You know, there was stuff there for kids that was really dark, and we—I I don't think oh, we get that anymore. Yeah. I mean, what we've what have we got coming out in a few weeks? The Smurfs too. Get ready to be naughty. Ooh. <laughs> and planes, like cars, but in the air. <laughs> uh, and as soon as something actually has a potential to go for kids, um, like Up, um, you know, is a Pixar movie, but then it has that opening sequence, and adults go, "That's ours." Yeah. Go away, kids. You can't possibly yeah. understand the emotional subtlety of the yeah. first ten minutes of Up. You go away. There's probably reason I think kids are more sensitive <clears throat> nowadays, to be quite honest with you, because I remember when I was working in the cinema, unfortunately, kids running out of films that were intended for them, absolutely screaming their heads off, crying. And it really? Was, um, it was some um, Jack Frost in the... Santa Claus 2. No, movie. 3. It was Santa, Santa Claus, Claus 3. 3. It was uh, Martin Short as Jack Frost in that movie. They were running out screaming. Yeah, that's just because their parents hadn't toughened them up with a bit of uh, tripods <laughs> and dark crystal. <laughs> screaming. Now, you see, when I was three or four years old, I was watching Dark Bloody Crystals. Right? <laughs> well, I it's, an, it's not that Dark Crystal has its dark moments. It's just dark, dark, dark. There's just no relief. Yeah. Uh, 
even not until the, like the credits went up where you can finally go. Oh, it's over. Um, but it's interesting because the, the Dark Crystal, I don't think it did very well, and it's understandable why. But so they, later on, they tried it again with Labyrinth, which was let's put some songs in there, let's have yeah. some fun characters in there. Yeah, it's much nicer. And it's much uh, and, but yes. It's still quite yeah. dark. I'm it's sure, still it's still, but there's moments of fun and friendship going on in there. And, I'm and sure no we, we're going to come back to Labyrinth. Well, we are obviously because yeah, yeah, obviously I was just, I just mentioned it as an aside as it's relevant to Dark Crystal. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the thing, the, the, the thing, the abiding thing that we've got to take away from the Dark Crystal is really that's for kids. Um, and, and what's what's even more amazing because we talked about ET and we talked about the Dark Crystal is that um, in this year for adults came The Thing, John Carpenter's yeah. The Thing. And this was, uh, at the time, universally derided and uh, given a critical panning because people were like, well, nobody I, wants to see this. What's going I on? I think John Carpenter was a bit of a whipping, whipping boy, though, wasn't he? I, I, I get that feeling. Uh, well, I think there is a definite uh, atmosphere to which, um, you know, Halloween and... Uh, was like this big thing, uh, and, and of course, you know, we see the legacy of Halloween. In fact, Friday the Thirteenth Part Three and Halloween Three: Season of the Witch both came out in 1982. You know, it was happening. Oh, I and mean, you know, and let's not even go into Tenebre, the Dario Argento movie. You know, there was a lot of you know the slashing was really starting to to to, to pick up steam um, at this point. And, 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 yeah, I think that he was, at this point, by the industry, viewed as a little bit of a disappointment. They were expecting bigger things of him. What's really odd is that, in the long term, the work he did at this stage in his career has turned out to be, oh, this is, you know, the thing now regarded as a work of genius that causes, that causes people to froth at the mouth when they make a prequel and, oh, well, I didn't like that, oh... Oh, it's so stupid. Hmm. Um, well, it is. I think because peeps, he did find his audience. There are people who did like John Carpenter's work. I think they just grew up and made films themselves and cited him as a big influence. And perhaps he's more influential to well, filmmakers. Well, I don't know. I mean, because of course there's the sort of unofficial John Carpenter Kurt Russell trilogy, that being Escape what? from New York, The Thing, and Big Trouble in Little China. Personally, I've always found him a very um, eclectic director in that sometimes he'll just pull out something like The Thing, which is amazing, and then he'll just do dross. I I can't go... If I see a John Carpenter on that, I, that won't guarantee... John Carpenter, that won't guarantee to me that it's going to be, like, amazing and the film. It depends when it's being made, who's in it. It's a lot of things. Like, I don't know. I don't know if it does depend entirely when it was made, because... In the Mouth of Madness, which is one of his later movies in what, you know, at the point at which people were thinking he's going a bit off the boil now. Um, I think the mostly, I was disappointed by it, and I would love to see it again. It's very difficult to get hold of, I believe, in the UK now. But I would love to see it again, because I think the reason that I had sort of threw my toys out of the pram a bit is because I kind of understood what was going to happen, but then I was served up something else. But I don't think that was bad. I think that was just my fault, really. I think that's one of the weird things, is that it can be 
sometimes the audience's fault that they didn't get what they were expecting. And actually what they were given is fine, but it just, you know... Uh, and before which, you know, to keep things uh, bobbing along, uh, Blade Runner. Oh, yes. Again, that's a movie that was kind of like a bit panned at the time, but later found its audience. And I think people kind of have a thing where it's like, how could you have panned Blade How very dare you pan Because I think a lot of the criticism of Blade Runner is quite true. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty bad detective movie, but as, as, as an art film, it's fantastic. Yeah, and I think the other thing... The thing that occurs to me doing this exercise that I'd never really put together before is that Blade Runner came out in this year and the competition was harsh for, you know, for a popular cinema seat, you know, ticket sale. If Blade Runner had come out in some years, then it probably would have done fine because it didn't have much going on by the side of it. But in this year, I mean, Conan the Barbarian, seriously, you know, Rocky, First Blood. Star Trek 2. Yeah, tough year. Very yeah. tough year to make a sale on something so odd. I think yeah. the thing about Blade Runner is it's just a beautiful looking and beautiful sounded film. It's a beautiful soundtrack and it's beautiful looking. And it's also unbelievably influential. I mean, it changed it changed the look of cinema a certain type. It, it was very... I mean, it might be kind of panned by those critics and stuff, but, my God, people took notice of this kind of vision of the future... I heard an anecdote uh, recently about the production designer being yeah. very nervous because Philip K. Dick was coming in to see some uh, bits that had been assembled of the opening of Blade Runner. And, you know, Philip K. Dick, you know, had made lots of statements, but I don't think you can do what I've written as a movie. I don't, I don't think it's possible. I don't, and he went in and he went in and the production started hanging around and, Philip K. Dick came out and said, how did you do that? I go, how did I do what? How did you get inside my head? Yeah. And he said that, that you know, the, the fire and the lights and dark Los Angeles was exactly yeah. what he'd had in well, his head when he wrote it's it. A, it's a movie, I mean, it gets covers it covered in media courses. It's a movie you analyse as a student, as, as like, you know, future, future noir. It's almost a genre that never happened. Uh, Except it did, over and over again, yeah. but... Yeah, but it's it's kind of it's it's a movie you sit back and look at the layers and you look at the images that you're being presented with and you like oh you, and it's it's just like the whole world is kind of built up. I mean, you really there's, there's, there's like oh he's trying to look this film's trying to look be very Blade Runnery is a statement. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, very credible just, idea of the science fiction. I think you know we're used to up to this point fantastical environments. Shining steel, and here is someone going. Well, this is clearly what the future isn't going to be, but it's more believable than what it could be like. You know, yes, it's a sort it's of retrofitted sort of foundation of our of our world and added to it is not some something that somehow wiped out everything, and now we all live in gleaming tower blocks. It's been it's been you know uh, uh, spies. We've, we've, you know, it's and, and I think and it, so somehow it's just it feels the kind of retro futuristic thing. It just it, it just sparked everyone's imagination. Certainly, it sparked my imagination. And it was it was a huge it was a huge film for my brother. He would say it was the best science fiction film that was ever made, and then I was slightly disappointed when I eventually got around to seeing it as a result. So it took me a while to kind of warm to it as a kind of oh yes, I see the vibe you were going for, and the vibe is very good. But at the same time, I acknowledge the criticisms that it is quite a slow movie. 
I, it's interesting to me, you see, as somebody who comes from a different perspective, as as listening to somebody who's an artist and somebody who likes to make films, as a musician, listening to you two talking about that film, because I come from it from the perspective of the soundtrack of that film, because the soundtrack of that film was a massively influential yeah. to the soundtracks yeah. of films nowadays as well. Brilliant soundtrack. The soundtrack is so mood-setting to that film, for the visual and the soundtrack to work the way it does, set paved the way forward for movie soundtracking and the way movies are seen with music now. So, uh, yeah, brilliantly visual. The actual moments of violence in Blade Runner are not scored. It's it's more the sweeping cityscapes yeah. that are scored. One of the one of the things um, that I just want I think to close off the discussion right now. I think there's a lot of Blade Runner discussion about, so you know nobody's going to go begging on this, but. The one thing that I, I that I really noted was that I've watched Blade Runner. You know, I had to watch it eventually on video because I never got to see it on a cinema screen. Then I did go and see it. At, uh, oh no, I didn't. I think it was Aliens. I went to see it at the cinema at the Prince Charles in London, which shows old movies. But I, I you know, I watched it and I watched it and I watched it. I watched it on DVD uh, and I never really got it. Then we got an HD television and an upscaling connection to a DVD player. And I thought, oh, Blade Runner, that's one of those films that's supposed to be there. Let's see how my new television... And suddenly, the resolution, and you're like, oh, I see. And that is one of the the things about Blade Runner, is that unless you can see everything really sharply, it loses something. And I'd never realised that before. I nearly watched the whole movie again. And I was only testing out a television. <laughs> it was really weird. So, yeah, that, it is odd that someone... I mean, no, it's not, because Ridley Scott's known for this. But it's this idea that you've made a movie, then really, when you transfer it to VHS, it's never going to work the same way, because you can't get the definition. And the old television... You know, he'd made a film for 1080p in 1982. Yeah. <laughs> Just crazy. It was one of the first films I put on, on DVD. Um... And probably for that reason, I don't think I owned it on video. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 cracking. Yeah, uh, talking completely science fiction. Khan. Yes, yeah. I wanted to go there next. It was the first Star Trek movie I saw in the cinema, and uh, the second that the USS Reliant sort of sweeps into view as it heads towards Seti Alpha Six on its ill-fated journey. I remember turning to Alan and going, oh, that must be the spare Enterprise they have. When the Enterprise is off being cleaned, they use that one instead. Because for some bizarre reason, I thought Starfleet only had one ship. (laughs) (laughs) The first Star Trek movie I ever saw at the cinema, and we'll be a while before we get to it, First Contact. Oh, okay. Wow. That Uh, surprises me. Well, I mean, I'm surprised you missed Undiscovered Country, because I thought you'd be within the catchment zone for that one. No. Yeah, okay. I, well, that's a I, I don't. I, my memories of of Khan are, are definitely video. It's another one. I, I you know, we at that age, I was in mate's bedroom. We were watching, probably on a loop, Wrath of Khan, Beastmaster, you know, all these kind of things. And they were so. I probably didn't see it at the cinema. I probably just saw it there. But my God, did it change? You know, I mean, that was a big thing. Rather, Khan, it, it, in my opinion, revitalised Star Trek until eventually it petered out with Enterprise. Uh, I think most people can just give, discount Star Trek the movie, which, you know, wasn't all that good. Yes. Uh, uh, but, you know, it, it, Star Trek II was able to inherit quite a few of the sets. Yeah. Uh, and it's, Star Trek II is quite low budget. It was kind of like, let's, let's crank out another one. 
before this franchise vanishes. And all the elements were there for this to be a really terrible movie, but the script just really came together at the 11th hour. Yeah. So I pretty much wrote it back from a wishing list of things that people wanted in it. Exactly. And, it's, and it's just like, it's a really good revenge movie. And the fact it actually yeah. is based on an original Star Trek episode yeah. is really poignant. And yeah. Spock's death yeah. is, spoiler everyone, Spock's death at the end is... Uh, devastating and at the same time sort of fulfilling bizarrely uh, uh, it's great it's a great film and you say cheap but you know it had like one of the most expensive effects in any film at that point with, with this kind of CGI in it which they yes it was pioneering CGI yeah it, it was but reused completely almost like sequence the exact sequence in the third one because it cost so much money yeah it might not have had a lot of money elsewhere like tons, but my god, did that cost a lot of money? And actually, it's pretty impressive still when you look at the time. But I just want was... to, uh, I just want to interject here, as you said, pioneering CGI. Yes, everybody, we know that Tron was out in this year. Uh, for our thoughts on Tron, see uh, show number one, two, sometime in the Fairly past. Anyway. It'll, be, yeah. it'll, be, it'll be on the archive page now, won't it? Yes, it'll be on the archive page. Okay. So yes, track down that show. We talk about Tron at that point. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, to, to kind of go over the setup, I mean, um, there was a feeling with the first Star Trek film that they were handing knowledge that time had passed. So you get started to, and suddenly Kirk has his 50th birthday. The Star Trek ship, the Enterprise is full of kids because it's a training vessel now. Uh, and, and, and so you have Kirk feeling old, feeling past it. And when he first meets Khan, he, you know, he sneaks up to him in a Federation ship and kicks him in the ass. He breaks the Enterprise's back. The Enterprise never recovers from the damage it takes. It is destroyed in, a, in the Star Trek III because of the damage it took in two. Um, and, and Kirk has a real crisis of confidence. He feels old. He feels past it. He can't, he can't do this anymore. And, and, and Spock you know, dies in the end. He really loses something. He gains a son, but he loses Spock. And it's, it's just kind of like, you know, it, it was such a poignant movie. It just felt like he really put a good cap on the whole kind of Star Trek franchise, and it was such a good kind of war movie as well. It's kind of it's kind of a submarine sort of a movie, isn't it? It's a battleship movie. Um, it was a good naval movie. Um, that that it, it was a it was a, it's a good enough movie in and of itself as well. And I think it, it just totally revitalized Star Trek for like almost two decades afterwards. I think Next Gen came out on the back of Star Trek 2. Every Star Trek film that came out afterwards was on the back of Star Trek 2. I think it saved it. I mean, I think, you know, I think it could have just disappeared if they hadn't. And and also, because of that, then the, the franchise of the TV show, I think it was a very important film. Completely went over my head, unfortunately. I, the only thing I remember about that film, up until I saw it later on in life, I had to re-watch it again as an adult, was the bug things that went in some of the I only ever had the TV taped version. On the TV taped version, they always took out the actual bugs going into the into yeah. the air. Um, but it, it's interesting that at the time, because it was like the Star Trek franchise was thought to be winding down, it's going to be like sequels of diminishing returns, you know, yeah. the old paradigm. Yeah. So you got you got Lenin and Nemoy going, I'll bow out in this one. And yeah. so that was actually, you know, Spock legitimately died in that movie. Yeah. There wasn't really a grand plan to bring him back. I think it's one of the best deaths ever. Yeah, it is. And actually, one of the reasons that annoys me about the recent Star Trek film is the fact that they just basically yes. tap into that, but without all the emotional depth, because that was a really big thing when you watch that. That was a, you know... And also the fact that they did it with Nemesis as well. Nemesis, Star Trek Nemesis is pretty much a remake of Wrath of Khan. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, I think Undiscovered Country is all right. It's quite enjoyable. I think it's the, it's the other good movie that they made. I never really warmed to Voyage Home. I know everyone loves it as a good comedy. But as a kid, I was like, there's no space battles. You've, yeah. you've given me Star Trek 2 and 3, which has been space battles and fighting Klingons and death, and fighting war and sacrifice, and suddenly it's a comedy in contemporary America about saving whales. Um, <clears throat> do you not like First Contact, then, Ian? Um, first Contact is fine. Um, I think it's probably <laughs> the best. Well, the thing is, I think Next Generation is a TV cast. It's not a movie cast. Uh, and and all, it, Picard is a lot more tougher in the movies. There's a lot more kind of grab your phaser rifle, let's get at him. And he was never like that in the TV series. He was a diplomat. He was find a reasonable solution. I think it was it was obvious, like, let's do a Borg movie, because that, that would obviously have some, you know, some Borg with popular. Um, it, it was all right. It was fine. Um, it's, interesting. It's, it's interesting that you should say that because my experience of First Contact is that I knew, know a lot of people who don't like Star Trek and they find First Contact perfectly reasonable as a movie. And that's so, fine. I don't begrudge people enjoying movies I'm lukewarm about. Yeah, but, no, but, no, no, what's it, no, but what's interesting about it is the fact that First Contact is the one that non-Star Trek fans seem to warm to. Um, and I know a lot of people who share your position on the Star Trek side of the fence. Which is quite surprising because First Contact is, is quite dependent on Star Trek lore about, you know, establishing the Federation and that the post-eugenics wars that Earth has gone through and discovering warp travel with Zephyr and Cochran and, and Vulcans at the end, spoilers. Um, and you know the whole Borg and Picard was ca- captured by the Borg and turned into a Borg, and now he's got a Borg grudge. There's, there's an awful lot of Star Trek mythology in in, in, in First Contact, so I, it's, it surprised me that it's kind of a kind of a casual viewer favourite. Well, there we go. That's the, that's the way it is. I just was interested when you said, yeah, the Undiscovered Country is the other good one that they made. I'm like, okay, fair enough. Well, of the classic of the classic movie, uh, the original cast movies. Yes. Okay. So, um, I think we've, we've kind of, we've, we, I'm amazed, but we have in the course of the show managed to cover off most of 1982. The only thing that I want to bring in at the end here is there is a very obvious thing here. And it's almost like we were talking about 70s action movies versus 80s action movies. And we have talked about how this is the, the clarion call of the 80s action movie. It's starting here um but we've also got here a couple of things where it's like people are trying to make the old type but it's becoming infected by the 80s the two movies off the list i'm poking on are 48 hours and firefox both Mm. of which are actually in the first instance your 70s style action thriller you know that level either military or detective grizzled Made characters doing something, you know, gritty and and you know, on the streets and or in the military case doing a military operation. But then in Firefox's case, um, you've got that plane, the Firefox, yeah. and that become that's the eighties thing. In fact, Firefox is like the grandfather of all the stuff we were talking about in the US show about you know, airwalk. Curiously, is, isn't isn't like Firefox a Russian jet? And it's very unusual these days to portray the Russians as being pioneer of, of technology that's too dangerous. We've got to get it. Yes, um, and Forty Eight Hours obviously had Eddie Murphy in it. And although, I mean, if you watch it now, like I watched it way after the point where it came out. At the point where it came out, it was quite, kind of different. 
But then if you've watched Beverly Hills Cop in the meanwhile, and everything else that has that kind of dynamic, it seems quite tame. But at the time, it, it did, yeah, they said, oh, this is the gimmick. But that became the thing of, of, of you know, the, the sort of buddy movie with the... I haven't, I haven't seen 48 Hours, I have to, I have to confess. In 48 Hours, Nick Nolte gets Eddie Murphy. He's, Eddie Murphy's a convicted criminal, but he's got information contacts that would lead him to a big bust. So they gave him 48 hours out of jail. And Nick Nolte has oh. to, is, is to, you know, told, you know, you, you have to make sure that he doesn't escape, that he doesn't, you know, and it's about, so the, he, he's, Eddie Murphy's got the, the skills to get the job done, but Nick Nolte has to like threaten him with guns and run around after him babysitting him. And over the course of the movie, they of course generate a mutual respect. <laughs> I, I just, I just know, but the, the sequel was called Another Forty Eight Hours, which I yes. thought was like huh, for a sequel that was a reasonable title. I I'm suppose. pretty sure that Another Forty Hours, and I'm not sure because I haven't seen it. But I think they reversed it. I think that what happened was, and it's interesting because usually when they do a gimmick and they switch things up like that, you know, people are like, oh, seriously? But actually, Nick Nolte's character was never portrayed as being whiter than white. So it was like, I think that Nick Nolte had 48 hours out of jail in the second one. And then he had to partner up with Eddie Murphy or something. It was really, yeah, and it was one of the few times I remember where that's particularly, oh, that's kind of believable. It's plausible. I can go with that. So yeah, I was, yeah. I mean, it's just interesting. It was a lot tamer than the later buddy movies of the eighties, uh, but worth noting for its existence here. So yeah, I mean, in in summary, yeah, welcome to nineteen eighty two. The eighties starts here. Um, I mean, not that not that we've had. I mean, nineteen eighty one was jam packed full of stuff. Yeah. But this is where I can feel the eighties. Running through my veins. Through yeah, there's quite a few things here that, that are okay. utterly meaningless to me. I don't know what Time Rider is about. That one's gone past me. Time Rider: uh, The Adventures of Lyle Swan. No, I can't. I don't know that either. And I wish Porky's, I could find out. No idea what that's about either. You've got no idea Basket what Porky's is about. Basket Case. Basket Case. I've seen Basket Case. Basket Case is a, a, a kind of effects horror movie about a guy who. Um, you know, like you have this thing about twins that were conjoined in the womb, but one of them killed the other. Well, this is one where the twin that died in the womb didn't die in the womb, and in fact is this strange mutant that lives yeah. in a basket yeah. called Emil. Um, kind of gross, kind of horror. Kind I think of. I've heard, I think people talk about this now, you even to mention it. Oh, and Flight of the Dragons, I know nothing about it whatsoever. Oh, it's an animated Cat movie, it's very good. Yeah. Uh, Cat people, I know nothing. Uh, that's a remake of a 30s, remake of a 30s sort of... Uh, Monster, one of those monster movies where you don't see the monster all the way through, but then there was a guy who made them, and I can't remember the guy's name, the producer, who went, well, why do we have to see them at the end either? And it's all done with implication. And they kind of did it straight, so which is why it's kind of been forgotten. Oh, and of course, Creepshow attempting to revive the Portmanteau horror movie uh, <laughs> franchise thing didn't really work. I think it's a decent movie, but... Okay. And I just, I just also want to say, Airplane 2, I have seen Airplane 2, I've seen it when I was a kid. It yeah. never gets repeated as far as I'm aware. I've seen Airplane 1 to the point I can recite it. Yeah. I, Airplane 2, I, I've seen clips and they seem as funny as Airplane yeah, 1. I remember it being very, you know, as as good. Yeah, I mean, I mean it basically like it just had, it had, it said it was more of a sci-fi pastiche. That's why Shatner. Yes. So basically, rather the first one is a straight kind of 70s. Uh, spoof of airplane kind of movies. This is I just remember the, cap- the captain's back again. And he's captain over, isn't he? 
and he's joined by his, his crew, which is Unger. Was, was, was what is it? Unger and over and yeah. Oh damn! It's it, it's a really great skit. But over and going out like that. It's it's, it's yeah. Right. Anyway. It's film. It's good film. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think what we've what you've just done there, Ian, is managed to to show that in 1982, films that we would have talked about in other shows really don't get a look in because there's too much right. to talk about. So I think we're probably going to have to sort of back away there slowly. But if people want to continue discussing things, maybe they're outraged that we missed their particular favourite. I know we haven't really discussed the Beastmaster, but I, I don't know. I mean. We brushed over Conan the Barbarian. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things just coming. Yes. Boom, and that happened, and this happened, and then that happened as well. I My think, God. Uh, well, I think that when it comes to Conan and, and Beastmaster and things like that, I think we are definitely going to have to dedicate a show to sword and sorcery. So it's, because uh, we'll John underpants and talk about yeah. crushing our enemies. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I'm I'm flying the baby a lotion now as we speak. <laughs> uh, okay, well I think that's definitely a point uh, which we want to get. We want to go to Ian. And Where subjects you want to talk about? Discuss it on the page. Yes, yes, that's exactly it. Go on, Ian. Tell us where we can. Talk about well, it's on Facebook, obviously, and that's with Facebook slash Revenge of the Eighties Kids, and that's eighties as a number, so that's eight zero S. Please go there. Please like. Uh, it's where our podcasts, our links are put up there. We also put up links to other things, news articles, clips, uh, discussions I had there. It's our community hub, our beating heart or the beast, you might say. So, yes, please go to our Facebook page. But if it's podcasts you want, podomatic.com is the is where you need to go. Uh, there, however, it's letters, not numbers. That's 80s, E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S, kids.podomatic.com. Please go there. Please subscribe to our podcast with the podcast aggregator of your choice or just download to your computer for dark reasons of your own. Um, some of our older shows are now, however, archived, and Leo will give you details on those. Yes, you can find uh, some of our very oldest shows on uh, leostableford.blogspot.com uh, because we suddenly ran out of room on the uh, podcast aggregator. Now, the podcast aggregator feeds all of the subscription channels, e.g. iTunes and stuff, so we are continuing to use that space, but we have to clear from the bottom, and then you can find the older shows. You can come to my blog, leostableford.blogspot.com. Um, and you can also, uh, from there, uh, get to bridgetowntales.blogspot.com, which is where I'm doing a fairy tale uh, blog this year. And it suddenly occurs to me, I also post the link to the podcast every week uh, on Twitter, um, and you can find me at one monkey. I don't think anyone else has a Twitter. Do you have a Twitter, Ian? No, I don't. I, I got and Facebook. I do you have a Twitter? Do you have a Twitter, Justin? I, I, don't, I don't. So if people wanted to see more of Justin Wyatt, where might they do that on the internet? Uh, you can find me on my Deviant Art page under the name Justin Wyatt, where what there is various stuff there. Browse it as you wish. So yes, so that's where you can find all of us, and. Uh, we're, we're all pretty much 80s down, I think, now. So we're all going to retire to our bat caves. I am. And, uh, uh, I yes. am standing with some behind me with a hawk on my arm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Looking <Yes>. into the <gasps> Until next time, be good. Yes. Bye-bye. See ya.
of all the podcasts I've met in my travels, this was the most human 